Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Lesson 55 in the Torah series, The Gospel According to Moses, the Book of Genesis. Now in Lesson 54 and in 55, we're focus, focusing in on one chapter, and that's Genesis 24. And here, here's the events in Abraham's life, his servant's life, Isaac's life, and Rebecca's life where God chooses a bride for Isaac. Now one thing we learned in the first part of this study in Lesson 54, there's a biblical concept and it's called Ma'aseh Avot Sinam Lebahim. The lives, the events, the happenings in the lives of the fathers are signs or predictions or portents for the sons. The rabbis saw this early on. And, you know, when you study the Bible, God seemingly is using events in the past to show what is going to happen in the future. Both events are, you might say, they, they stand alone. The event in the past is important in God's redemption plan, but it's almost like God is saying, yes, this event is important. It's all part of my plan. However, this also will give you an idea of what it's going to be like in the future as the redemption plan bears its fruit. It's like the great redemption that Adonai provided through Moses, his first redeemer, for his chosen people. He brought them out of Egypt, redeemed them from the bondage of slavery, and they entered a new covenant. God entered a new covenant with Israel at the mountain of God, which we call Mount Sinai. And you say, wait a minute. <laughs> Quite definitely, this is Ma'aseh Avot Sinam Le'bachim. The awesome events and the lives of the Hebrews is also to tell us about the future, a future Passover. Because we remember God came to do the ultimate redemption through his son Yeshua, the final redeemer. The Messiah in Judaism is called the ultimate redeemer, the final redeemer. Moses is called the first redeemer. And Yeshua is that redeemer. He, he brought He's going to bring his people out from the bondage of sin. And we enter a new covenant with him at the mountain of God, which is Jerusalem. Indeed, this is, again, one clear major example of that concept, ma'aseh avot, sinam le. Bahim. In lesson 54, we seem to see this again as we started studying Genesis 24. Abraham sends his servant to find a bride for his beloved son, his beloved son of promise, Isaac, through whom all of the nations, now your Bible will probably say will be blessed. However, there's an alternative equal translation that says, through Abraham, all nations of the earth will be grafted in. This is in Genesis 12, verse 3. And this comes from the Hebrew, not the English. And this is a valid alternative translation. Now, I did this in Lesson 25 in this series. So, if you go to the website and you find this lesson, Lesson 55, and you look at the introduction to the lesson that is below the picture, 
for less than 55. I've linked you to less than 25. So you can go back and you can study the concept in Genesis 12, verse 3, that indeed the alternative way of reading that verse is that through Abraham, all nations, all families of the earth will be grafted in. But Adonai sends his servant, Jesus. This is all over Isaiah. All of a sudden we see Israel is the servant of God and we see another one. It's as if there's two there. Especially Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4. You look that up. God says his servant sends his son to find a bride for himself, Jesus. So Jesus, the beloved son of the father, who's the promised one, who's the Messiah, and in him we're grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And he came to enter a new covenant with us where he became our bridegroom and we became his bride. Wow, is it? it seems like it's connected to Genesis 24. It's amazing. Now the events in Genesis 24 stand alone. God showed us back in Genesis 22, right at the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 24, that he had already chosen Rebekah. Abraham didn't even know this. Neither did Isaac. But all of a sudden, there's Rebekah's name. God is showing us that he is way ahead of the game. It's God's, It's part of God's amazing plan. Not only for Abraham and his son Isaac and the carrying out of the covenant that he made with Abraham, but also for all of us, for all nations where he promised through Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that all nations of the earth will be blessed or the alternative translation is grafted in. But Adonai also helps us see how all scripture testifies of Jesus. Jesus told us that. He taught us this in John 5, 39. So let us return. Let's return to that well that's outside the city of Nahor. Abraham's servant is sitting there and he's praying. And he's asking the Lord to show him a sign. And the sign is that the bride that the Lord has picked for Isaac will be the one, will be that girl who comes to him, the servant of Abraham, to offer to water his camels, all ten of them. That's huge. Now, while he's praying, Rebecca's coming. I mean, that's how you read it in Genesis 24. Is she the one? Will she offer to water the camels? Is this another event that is a sign for the future? We know she's the bride for Isaac, the promised one. <laughs> Who's the bride of Christ? Well, that's us. Is there a possibility that there's a connection between us and Rebecca? Come, let's go see.
Let me read this from Fox's translation. The maiden was exceedingly beautiful to look at. Whoa! Was she hot? A virgin. No man had known her. Going down to the spring, she filled her pitcher and came up again. She was beautiful, but the issue is this. It's her character. That's the issue. That was the deciding factor. She comes along and she volunteers to water 10 camels. Now, when you study camels, one reference said, when camels are thirsty, they need 25 gallons of water. 25 gallons. We have found pitchers that women would carry dated back to the 21st century B.C. This is when it happened, 21st century B.C. That's the dating. So they were two to three gallons. So let's assume, as this one reference that I had, that it's 2.5 gallons, because that's easy, okay? Because if you have 10 camels, and they each need 25 gallons, okay, that's 250 gallons. If you divide that by 2.5, that's 100 trips to the well. Now, she possibly is in the middle of an area, okay, that's not you know, farmland in Minnesota with the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River. I have been in Wadi Rum with a Muslim shepherd, and when we had to go to the well to get water, okay, it was a well, and the water was probably 30 feet below, and the jar, okay, was on a hook, and we had to lower it down to get the water and to bring it back up again. It was a hard job. This is not going to a well and turning on a spigot, okay? A hundred trips to the well? Why didn't she just do this? Okay, she's really a nice girl, beautiful, okay? She's not like her brother Laban. <clears throat> Laban and I don't get along well, but that's another story. I'll mention something him a little bit later on. Why didn't she do this? Hey, stranger, I'll tell you what. I know your camels are thirsty. You know what I'm going to do as a token of my goodwill? I'll, I'm going to give them each a pitcher. She didn't do that. 25 gallons. She did a big job. So the future bride of the father, of the father's firstborn, one and only son of the promise, went beyond expectations. The bride. The future bride of the father's one and only son of the promise, his firstborn, went beyond expectations. What about us? Aren't we the bride of Messiah as disciples? We're told to be like Rebecca. Rebecca's our model. What did Jesus say? This is Matthew 5:41. If somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him too. If somebody's got 10 camels, don't just give him one jar. Give him 100 jars. Same idea. It's Rebecca. We're supposed to be Rebecca. You know about what else? <laughs> this guy is sitting there. It could be Eliezer, I said. It could be. There's no name. He's a stranger. She doesn't know him from anybody. And she provides unbelievable, unexpected hospitality to a stranger at the well. Later on, we read the following. Leviticus 19.18.
the second greatest commandment in the Bible, according to Jesus. Leviticus 19.18, reading from the Fox translation, translation, But be loving to your neighbor as one like yourself. I am Yahweh. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now listen to the statement in English. Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself, you should treat your neighbor. Your neighbor, yourself. Okay? Now go to 1934. 1934. Like the native born among you, you shall be uh, uh, among you, you shall be to you the sojourner that sojourns with you. In other words, the stranger who comes will be like a native born. Be loving to him as like yourself. For sojourners were you in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. What did he just say? Love your, love, well, first of all, it was love your neighbor as yourself. Now love the stranger as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Stranger. Remember Jesus? Somebody comes to him and said, Jesus, what do I need to be saved? And he said, Hero Israel, the Lord is a God, and love your neighbor, that type of stuff. Well, who's my neighbor? Remember the question? And you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And so when this, you remember the story. So the thing is, when that's all over, Jesus says to this Jew, okay, what's, who's your neighbor? Be like the Samaritan. The Samaritan did something to a hated Jew because the Jew hated the Samaritan. Matter of fact, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other more than the Jews ever hated Jesus. Jesus takes it even further. But look at her. What's she doing? She's treating the stranger like her neighbor. She is living the greatest, second greatest commandment in the entire Bible, and it wasn't even given yet. Look at her character. Matter of fact, Paul says something like this. I can't remember the verse, but he said, uh, the fulfillment of the Torah, okay, is to love your neighbor. Because if you believe in God already, okay, great, that's fine, love God. So therefore, what's the fulfillment of the Torah? Love your neighbor, love your stranger, love the Samaritan. Who's your neighbor? That's clear, Torah's clear. <laughs> Even a stranger you don't know. Rebecca is the future bride of the firstborn of the father, the one and only son. And she lives Torah. She doesn't sit there, she acts. Here's the point. The Hebrew view of love is not feelings. Action. Not to substitute it. Good feelings for somebody? Yeah, I got it. But you may hate, you may dislike, you may fear that stranger, but you're going to say, uh-uh. I'm going to bypass my feelings and I'm going to act like Rebecca, like the Samaritan. That Samaritan, I don't know if that person had good feelings about the Jew. I bet that Jew was really surprised when he found out he's in the guest house and so on. And he found, yes, yeah, Samaritan paid for us to take care of you. A Samaritan? What are you kidding? So for us, it's not just only about feelings, but it's about action. So when you talk about loving your neighbor as yourself or loving the stranger as yourself, look what the Samaritan did. Did it say he picked up the Jew and gave him a hug? Ooh, I just love you. No, he acted. He did something. 
And again, this whole idea of do, get up and do it. Our bridegroom, Yeshua, says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But he also said this. He's the bridegroom, yes? He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. We're Rebecca. He's Isaac. That's it's not, because it's not the allegory that we're looking at, but we're looking at this correlation. But he says this, John 14, 15. If you love me, give me a hug. If you love me, I hope you have good feelings about me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do it to show our love for him. <laughs> you guys, there's more. There is so much more. But Jesus has the name above all names. And indeed, it is amazing because he is sent by God in the Father's name. Because he, does he send himself? He is sent by God. We're sent by God. We're sent by Jesus, who has the name Yahweh, which is the name of God. So be like Rebecca. We're going to go the extra mile, love our neighbor as ourselves by doing. Love the stranger ourselves by doing something. Rebe Rebecca proved her worth, okay? She proved her worth. In the eyes of the servant, quite definitely said, now this is the one. Not only is she a beautiful, but look what she did. Amazing. So let us be like Rebecca. Genesis 25, 1 through 10. I'm not going to read it, per se, to save some time. And you guys can read that on your own. But in Genesis 25, 1 through 10, uh, one thing we find out is some commentary here as we end off our evening and end off our lesson for tonight. It says, Abraham had taken another wife and her name was Keturah. And it's fascinating um, because you have, need to understand that Jewish literature is not chronological. The Bible is not chronological. You want it to be chronological. You want to say, okay, we're in chapter 25, so therefore Sarah's buried, all that type of stuff. Um, Isaac is married now to Rebekah, and all of a sudden Abraham is going to take another wife. It doesn't say that because the Bible's not chronological. And on top of that, I'm going to show you that he didn't get married after Sarah died. Because the Torah tells you. First of all, one of the things is, um, and we, we look at it chronological, but as soon as we do that, we can't see the forest through the trees. Now, what's interesting is the Orthodox in the Chumash, they basically say, Keturah is Hagar. That's what they say. And I've heard this because Christians will say, you know what the rabbis say? The rabbis say Keturah is Hagar. And they go off on that, so therefore, that's Hagar. And they really? The Torah doesn't say that. Matter of fact, they say just as Hagar was restrained in her relationship, we find out that Keturah, what it means, now this is what they say. Listen to this very carefully. Keturah is an Aramaic name that means to be restrained. Therefore, her name is associated to the name Hagar. An Aramaic name. Aramaic as a language first appears in the Middle East in the 11th century BC. We're dealing with the story of Abraham, who hasn't died yet, in the 21st century BC. A thousand years before Aramaic even shows up. How could the name Keturah be Aramaic? 
You can't. Impossible. So we have to take their opinion and their thoughts and throw it out because it does not even match history. I'm going to say this again, you guys. The church and Judaism have forgotten their history. And they make things up to fit what they want. And what I'm trying to teach is, what does the Torah say? What does the Torah not say? And especially to put it into the historical context. So, for example, Isha. That name or that word can mean wife. And that's exactly the word that appears there in 25.1. Okay? Abraham took an Isha. But you know what it also means? A woman. So, in 1 Chronicles 1.32, you can look this up. In 1 Chronicles 1.32, and you can read it in Hebrew, it says that Keturah was a concubine. Exactly. Now, what's a concubine? A woman, okay, associated with a husband with not the same status as the wife. So they have sexual relations, all that type of stuff. Children, the children become legal parts of the family, but a concubine has a lower status than the wife. And that comes directly from Webster's Dictionary. So what's fascinating is she and Abraham had children, yes? Because it lists the children. Hmm, we have an issue. Because when Abraham was 100, 40 years before this, this is Genesis 17, 17, God shows up and says, by the way, you guys are going to have kids. <laughs> and Abraham says, what? Are you kidding? I'm 100. I can't have kids anymore. He had concubines. He had sons before that. This is, this is much later. He couldn't have children. So him finding a concubine, Keturah, okay, this happens much later. I mean, much earlier. Probably at the time, maybe when they came first out of um, Haran and came first into Canaan. Here's the point, though. Why is this mentioned? Keturah is not even an issue. What's the point? The point is verses 5 and 6. Specifically, the first phrase in verse 5. Abraham gave it all to Isaac. That's the point. Right before he dies, you want to know something, Isaac gets it all. None of the other sons, they're all, okay, actually given gifts and they're sent away far away from Isaac. So Sarah was the only wife, and Keturah was an Ish, a woman, okay, of many concubines that he probably had. Now in Genesis 25, 7 through 10, we come up with this, and I want to read this, Genesis 25, 7 through 10. Now these are the days and years of life of Abraham, which he lived, a hundred years and seventy years and five years. There it is again. I don't know why they do that, but that's probably just the way of doing it which he lived 100 years and 70 years and 5 years, and he expired. Abraham died at a uh, good ripe age, old, old, satisfied in days, and was gathered to his kinspeople. Yitzhak and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, son of Tzahor, the Hittite, that faces Mamre. Okay, what does the Torah say? In 25, verse 8, he dies. After that, he's gathered to his people. In verse 9, he's buried. Three things. He dies, he's gathered to his people, and then he's buried. 
That's an interesting phrase. Gather to his people. Ishmael, you can take a look at this in 2517. He dies. He's gathered to his people. Genesis 35:29. Genesis 35:29. Isaac dies. He's gathered to his people and then he's buried. Where is he buried? The cave of Machpelah. Now there it is again. He dies, gathered to his people, and then he's buried. Jacob, it's even worse. This is 4933, uh, Genesis 4933, and then uh, Genesis 50:12, and so on. You can read that. Jacob tells Joseph, I want to be buried in Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah. So that's a long way, okay, from Egypt, a long way. It says that Jacob died, he was gathered to his people, and then he was buried. Days and days later, Aaron too, and Moses, they die and they're gathered to his people. What is this? All of a sudden we have this phrase. Torah is implying something amazing. Gather to his people is not death. Why? Because death, okay, gather to his people follows death. So it's not death. It can't be burial. Because Jacob is buried later, okay, he's gathered to his people after he died. So what is it? Let me go to the JPS Torah commentary. And we read, Nahum Sarna is the commentator and the scholar, and he says this, This phrase is peculiar to the Torah. It's used of Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses. An analysis of the context in which it is found reveals that it is to be distinguished from death. Clear. Because the action follows the demise. It is not the same as burial in an ancestral cave because it is employed because it is employed of Abraham, Aaron and Moses, none of whom was buried with his forefathers. It is also not identical with internment in general because the report of burial follows this phrase and the difference between the two is especially blatant in the case of Jacob who was interred quite a while after being gathered to his kin. It would seem therefore, listen to this. It would seem therefore that the existence of this idiom as of the corresponding figure to lie down with one's fathers, that's another one that's used, to lie down with one's fathers, or to gather, to be gathered to his fathers, testifies to a belief. Despite his mortality and perishability, listen, man possesses an immortal element that survives the loss of life. You have an immortal element. We call it the soul. Where is it? In the Torah. This is not a Christian concept. There are Bible critics, both Jew and Gentile, who say, you know, this resurrection stuff and life after death and a spiritual life, they got that from the Greeks because that was big and heavy. Torah refutes this claim completely. There are segments of Orthodox Judaism. That's why it's always fascinating when people say, those Jews, which ones? Well, those Orthodox, which ones? The Orthodox have to... There are Orthodox Jews, not all of them, some of them, and religious Jews who are not Orthodox do not believe in the afterlife. In Judaism today, for the most part, most Jews do not believe in the afterlife. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, they may be Jews, 
but they're not practicing Judaism. Judaism is based upon the Torah, and the Torah says there's an afterlife. Are you with me? Remember the Sadducees? They were Jews, religious Jews, who did not believe in the afterlife. Now there's three, now you'll love this, those of you that really want to go deeper, there are three great Torah commentaries, only three. First of all, it's the JPS Torah commentary, which we're using and we'll use all the way through. The next one is Orthodox. There are great Orthodox scholars. Okay, The one that you want to get is called the Hertz Commentary, H-E-R-T-Z, Okay, not the Chumash. So I've got the Humash. Now that I remembered and I've got the notes on Hertz, I'm going to buy the Hertz commentary immediately. I'm kind of done with the Humash. I bless the rabbis. But when a rabbi tells me that her name, Keturah, is Aramaic and Keturah is living in 2100 BC and there's no Aramaic around, we have a problem. But there's three. The, the third one is Plout, P-L-O-U-T, and this is reformed. This is liberal, bar, close to being leftist. Okay. Matter of fact, JPS Torah commentary says there's an afterlife based upon this verse. Hertz agrees with it. Okay. Matter of fact, there are in the in the Chumash here, it doesn't even mention it. it. Doesn't even bring up the afterlife. I find that interesting. But Hertz is an Orthodox rabbi. Remember, the Orthodox are split up like the churches in many different segments. Don't say the Jews believe this. Okay, <laughs> which ones? Yeah, there's 17 million of us, and we're all split in little tiny groups. Plout is reformed and liberal. He basically says it's an idiom, okay, and it basically means he died. So therefore, when you're reading this, okay, you'll read it this way, according to Plout. Okay, uh, a Plout would basically say, uh, and Abraham died at a good ripe age, old and satisfied in days, and he died. You see, that's nonsense. What does the Torah say? Afterlife is not a Christian concept. Remember what, what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's, that's based upon Torah. That's a Torah statement. That's not Greek. But I want to end off with this. This is, and I do have to, this is my opinion. So take it as such. Psalm 91, verse 1. From the New American Standard, it says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Now, that word can be different from a lot of different versions. Does anybody have a different word than shelter? Just yell it out. Psalm 91.1. Secret place. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Psalm 91 comes after Psalm 90, if you're looking for it. <laughs> What's that? It's right before 92. Thank you, you're before 92. Follow Bruce's advice there. Anybody, anything different? Anyway, the Hebrew word there is seter, S-E-T-E-R. That's the transliteration. The uh, Strong's number is H5643. And when you actually go to a Hebrew lexicon, it means a hidden place. Someplace clandestine, a secret place, a hidden encampment. Now this is fascinating to me because we believe in the afterlife, and I'm really excited because this is where it comes from. 
It comes from Abraham's death. He dies, he's gathered to his fathers, and then he's buried. So all of a sudden, in the Torah, we get the aspects of the afterlife. And all of a sudden, now it says, he who dwells in the secret encampment of the Lord, or in the secret place of the Lord, he will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We have a spiritual aspect of our lives. We all agree. And now you can say the Torah really verifies that. There's a spiritual reality right now, right with us. There's a spiritual reality right now. It exists. And God seems to be painting a picture. Right now, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you dwell in his hidden encampment. You're there right now. That's the picture David's painting. Now, is there a hidden encampment? I don't know. Okay? But it's, it's a way we can relate. It's a way we can understand. God inspires David to say, the bride-to-be is the world in the secret encampment of the Lord. In 91.1, David is being inspired by God to say, the bride, where do we live? We're living now, flesh, blood, okay? That's not the spiritual. But from the spiritual point of view, we're in the encampment, the secret encampment of the Lord. We're in the secret encampment of the Lord as the bride-to-be as we await the wedding of his firstborn and one and only son of the promise. An amazing picture. We're Rebecca. And on top of that, we're the servant. And now, each and every day, you know what you should say? Lord, I got to go to work. Got to do this. I got to go to Cub. I got to do that. I got to, whatever. But I'm going to walk in the secret encampment of the Lord at the same time. You don't have to wait for it. The kingdom of God is not coming. It is. The kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God was here. The kingdom of God is beyond time. And the spiritual aspect of our lives means we get to dwell in that secret encampment 24-7. Amazing. Dwell in that secret encampment 24-7. Amazing. Now we recall Jesus saying, that you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, one of the things that's key is God is not going to violate our free will. We're not forced to follow his call. Just because he chose us doesn't mean we have to follow him. But it isn't amazing. He, he, did, chose, he did choose us. But will we follow? Will we choose him? Will we respond? And when we do, when we say yes... Like Rebecca, we are, we are surprised that God, Jesus chose us ahead of time. We are his chosen bride. So let's prepare ourselves and be a Rebecca. Let us be beautiful in the eyes of our Savior, not physical beauty. Rebecca was just amazingly beautiful. Let us live in such a way that spiritually we are beautiful under the eyes of our bridegroom. Ones who, like Rebecca, love the stranger. Love those who are not like us. Maybe ones who do not believe in the same God we do. 
Leviticus 19.18, that law and Torah, which Jesus said is the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible teaches us who our neighbor is. It's everyone. So are we ready to minister to them as well, like Rebecca? We want to prepare for the coming of our bridegroom. Living each day, dwelling in his hidden encamp, hidden encampment that we read about in Psalm 91, verse 1. So we say yes, we choose to follow him. We choose to declare that Jesus is Lord. We bow down to him as God. Come, Lord Jesus, and cover us. Cover us with your wings, as it says in Psalm 91. Under your covering, under your authority as God. So in Genesis 22 through 24, we've learned some amazing, amazing things. We've seen again and again the biblical concept called Ma'ase Avot Sinam Le'banim. The lives, events, the happenings of the fathers are signs, they're portents of the future. Amazing. And we're even going to see that in the life of Abraham because now we're coming to Genesis 25 to the end of Abraham's life. Abraham dies, he's gathered to his fathers, and he's buried. And now we're at now that we're at the end of Abraham's life, it's time to ask the question, why him? Now this is very interesting because in Judaism and in the culture of the Jewish people, especially in Jesus' day, but even today, the death of a person is more important than when a person is born. Why? Because when a person is born, you don't know will he fill, fulfill or she fulfill her potential. Will she actually, he or she take on the tasks that the Lord has given them and be a success in the kingdom, not a success in the world? So we're looking at Abraham's death. And at that time, we're remembering him. And now we can ask the question, why did Adonai choose Abraham? So now we're going to take a look at Abraham's life and we're going to consider reasons why Adonai chose him. He's our father in the faith, as Paul teaches in the book of Galatians. And we're going to see what Jesus wants of us as we look at our father in the faith. We're part of the family. We're grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And our father in the faith is Abraham. What was he like? We're part of the family. We should have the same characteristics. Now, one thing we know, that right before Jesus ascends to the father, he tells his disciples to go and make disciples. This concept is found in the Torah. It's in the life of Abraham. We come back to that concept again. Ma'ase avot sinam le'banim. The lives of the fathers are portents for the sons. But how? How is discipleship 
in Jesus's day, not the way the church defines it today. They've abandoned their Jewish roots. They've abandoned the Bible in context. And we need to return, put the Bible back into its context so we can understand what it means to be a disciple of a rabbi, a disciple of Jesus, what he expects of us. And in the life of Abraham, we're going to see it. Are you interested? Curious? Well, look for Lesson 56, and I'll see you then. Shalom. Shalom.